We come now to our reading in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord, and we ask that he blesses our reading of it this morning. When you turn on the news, or you pick up a newspaper, or read uh, articles online at the moment, regardless about whether you're reading of the UK or the EU or the US, stories abound about the problems that we all have with our political leaders. Questions are asked about their motives, their intentions, what is driving them, is it selfish ambition, is it just that there's something wrong with them and they just can't help but doing uh, crazy things or inefficient things or are they just incompetent? All of this comes from a sense that our political leaders are in some way uh, not in the, the business they're in for the sake of the people that they govern. They're in it for themselves, for their own career, for their own betterment, uh, whatever that may happen to be. And what it breeds is a sense of distrust, of disunity. There is a sense that these are unjust leaders. They will always do only what they want to do, what they feel is right, not what is best uh, for the people that they seek to govern. And it, it creates a situation in which we feel that we don't want to follow them. We don't want to be part of, of what they're doing, of, of what they're about. And unfortunately, the same has been true over the years of the church. There has been distrust about the church, about what the church is about, about um, the leaders within the church. And sadly, over the years, as uh, you can see on, on a year-by-year basis, leaders uh, make mistakes. They do silly things. They slip into error and sin and bring disrepute on themselves, but also upon the church, such that it creates a feeling in society that people just don't want to be part of that, because I feel that what they are telling me isn't really true, and so I can't follow. The bigger question for us as Christians this morning is, do we feel the same way about God? We feel this way about most of the leaders in our country or in the police or the armed forces or whatever it might be. There is a sense of distrust in authority at the moment. 
And so why not God? Do we seek to follow where he leads us? Do we seek to go where he wants us to go, even when the going is tough, even when he seems to be taking things away from us that we find valuable, central to who we are? It's a big challenge. It's hard for us not to slip into this feeling that somehow God isn't uh, for our best, and it leads to us slipping away from following in his ways that he has put before us. Well, as we come to this passage in Romans chapter 2, we found in the first chapter that Paul has addressed uh, the Gentile world, if we can put it that way, in chapter 1. And he's pointed out that this whole world that we live in lives in opposition to God with no desire to follow in God's way. And he's pointed out some of the things that result from that. We're given over to the lusts of uh, our heart, the thing that we truly desire. We desire our satisfaction more than anything else. We want our pleasure. We want our fulfillment. And we will exclude everything, including God, from the center of our lives. And it leads not to happiness or joy, but ultimately to judgment and to destruction. And in the passage here in chapter 2, he continues his argument on, but refocuses it. Instead of um, picking up particularly on the world outside the church, he now brings in the believing family of God and the wider Jewish community as well, those who would say they know God and love God, not just the pagan world who would openly admit they want nothing to do with him. And in the opening part of the chapter, we find in verses 1 to 3, Paul outlining one key crucial fact that we stand before a just God. And Paul outlines that in the opening chapters, a number of chapters at the beginning of Romans, for one key point, to underscore this a central idea that for all that we might not understand God's ways, for all that life may not work out the way we feel it ought to go, God is still to be trusted above all things, and we are to invest ourselves fully, completely in following him, in doing whatever he asks us to do, however hard that may be. And he says in the opening words, the opening verses of this chapter, that we are left without an excuse when we stand before God, regardless of where we stand in this life. He says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And what Paul is doing is he's outlining the tendency towards hypocrisy in all of us and, sadly, particularly those who claim to follow God. And he's picking up here uh, certainly the Jewish community who would claim to want to follow God, and yet um, were not living in a manner that suggested that was true. They were relying on sacrifices to, to sort of pay for their sins, but they were then going on living in a manner that, that wasn't fitting of those who wanted to follow in God's way. And that was a danger that was certainly present in the early church as it is today. Those who are 
religiously prideful who are part of the group, the in crowd. They belong to the community of believers in some way and so risk becoming um, arrogant. Risk relying on the fact that they identify with this group but actually don't live in a manner that suggests they really do belong. And Paul addresses this in a couple of ways. He goes for the sort of shocking statement of saying that we all generally are without excuse. That is, we have no good argument to make that if we judge others, if we look down on others who are not as good as us. He's got in mind those in chapter 1, those in the world who indulge themselves fully, who don't know God. He's saying you claim to know God and you're passing judgment on other people. You can't do that because if you do, you don't really understand first who you are and secondly and most importantly, who God is. You seem to think that that you're okay, that you're sinless, that you are fine and yet you're committing the same sins that all the people in the world are that don't have any claim to know God. You are selfish and greedy and idolatrous. You give yourself over to um, the lust of your heart. In fact, you make that the center, the driving uh, force behind much of what you do. And then you point to those outside and say how awful, how filthy, how unclean. And Paul seeks to underscore the significance of this, outline the hypocrisy of this, by then drawing in God into this equation and outlining very clearly one key element of God, that our God is a just God. And if we say we know him, if we say we love him, then we say we understand that he is completely just as we stand before him. He says to the people uh, that you condemn others and you, the judge, are doing the very same things, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. They know. They know the difference between good and bad, right and wrong, and they claim to understand that God is a God who loves the good and the righteous and the just. And if he is such a God, and we say we know him and we love him and we follow him, that will have an impact on the way that we ought to behave, the way we ought to see ourselves. And he says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He makes it clear, it doesn't matter who we are, we will all be subject to God's judgment. There is nobody who gets a free pass, a free ride, who can escape because they're they're pals with the boss. It just doesn't work like that. Our God is completely just, completely righteous, and we are sinners at our core. And so we must understand that we have no right to judge and condemn other people because we're just as bad as they are. We're also those who have no right to point out the sins of other people in order to cover over the sins that we ourselves commit. This is something that we do quite often, isn't it? We recognize that that there are things that we do wrong. We recognize that there are things that, um, that aren't the way they ought to be in our lives, but in order not to really deal with them, we point out the sins of other people. They do more things that are worse than what we do, and so it makes our sins seem smaller and less significant. 
Our politicians do this all the time. We can see it, can't we, when they're taken to task on some TV show about some policy that they've enacted, which it turns out hasn't been beneficial for the poorest in society. And they're quick to say, well, at least it's better than the previous government and this terrible situation we inherited from them. Or it's pointed out that they've been caught doing something that they ought not to have done, and they point to other politicians who have done worse things than them because it distracts from the negative things that we've done, from the sins that we ourselves commit. And yet, Paul is outlining here that there is no possibility for this kind of behavior for those who follow Christ. For those who love God, we are without good reason, without good justification if we're judging other people. Because we must recognize that we ourselves are a mess. We are sinners. And we stand before a God who will hold all to account. We have a very keen sense of justice, don't we? We quickly identify when things are fair and when things aren't fair when it comes to what we receive. We're quick to see in our leaders failings that lead us to not follow them. And yet we have no fear of this when it comes to God. God will always and only ever do what is perfectly righteous, perfectly just. He will hold all to account regardless of who they claim to be. Corruption will never prevail with this God. And so unlike our political leaders, we always have good cause to follow in his way, even when it seems hard, even when it seems to make no sense, because at the end of the day, God will only ever lead us in what is right. In stark contrast to ourselves, because we are often self-serving. When we see that we stand before a just God... Paul expects that that will help us understand not just who we are, but how we are to follow God in complete obedience. We're called, uh, after understanding that we stand before a just God, to understand that we are then called to be a just people, just as he is. Paul cuts to the heart of the problem of his day. People, possibly Jews, as we've said, possibly Christians, uh, are judging and condemning people for sins that they are then going on to commit. They're presuming on the riches of God's kindness towards them, whilst excluding those outside from that same mercy, grace, and kindness. Of course God will forgive me because I'm the kind of person that God will want to forgive. I'm fine because I'm one of God's people, so I can go on doing sort of whatever I want to do, regardless of what God says in his word, because I know that I will be forgiven, unlike those rotten pagans over there. Paul says, you presume on the riches of his kindness, but do you not understand that the the goodness, the bounty of God's grace towards you is supposed to lead you to repentance, not to a false sense of security where you can sort of do whatever you want because you know the boss. This is a big problem. It's been a problem for uh, God's people ever since the beginning of the church right down to today. 
We always assume that we're worthy of forgiveness or that we should be shown the benefit of the doubt or that our circumstances justify the things that we do and yet we're quick to point out for other people that that's not the case. We can look at um, very real situations in our own um, in our own world to today, you know, over the last year or so, we've seen riots in the, um, in the U.S. around Black Lives Matter who feel that great injustice has been done primarily to the African-American community throughout American history. And because of that injustice, it justifies people with guns taking over the center of major American cities and, and setting themselves up almost as an independent state and burning and looting and destroying property, in some cases actually killing other citizens. And that is justified because of what happened to uh, people in our country in the past. We can look at situations that are similar here where um, organizations uh, like Extinction Rebellion cause the whole of Edinburgh, central Edinburgh or central London to grind to a halt, cause all manner of problems for people all over uh, the the capital cities of uh, Scotland and of the UK because we feel that great injustice is being done with regards to the environment. And so that justifies criminal damage and trespass and all sorts of other things. We're justified in committing these small sins because a far greater sin has been committed against me. Well, Paul tells his readers and us today that we live with a double standard if this is what we're doing. We are presuming that we should be forgiven for what we're doing because it really isn't that bad or it's justified in some way. But Paul says it's supposed to lead you to repentance, understanding the grace of God, that God will forgive sinners if they ask him to, and not lead you to license. That is, it should make you more just, more um, desirous of being law-abiding and upright and righteous, rather than making you feel that, well, sometimes I can bend the rules when I need to. And this, in turn, should make us as Christians more trustworthy. People should look at the church and always know that we will do what is good and what is right, regardless of the cost to us. We are not the kind of people who will say one thing on Sunday, but then uh, on Monday when it comes to going back to work or dealing with the neighbors or whatever it might be, then we'll maybe not be quite... Um, as keen to act with integrity, or that we'll not use language that is perhaps as kind or as gracious, or whatever it might be. Paul says that if we understand we stand before a just God, we will be an increasingly just and upright people. And this benefits our worship because we know the God that we worship and we're growing to become more like him. But it also benefits our discipleship as we trust one another that I know my brothers and sisters will do what is right by me, even if it means telling me that I'm going wrong because they want what is right and not what is easy or expedient. And it aids our witness. The church becomes a place that is truly trustworthy. It becomes not a place that hides abuse 
or that covers over um, impropriety or um, misconduct among its leadership or uh, whatever it might be. It, it's never going to be that place because I know those people will always do what is right. And that tells people of the God that we follow, that he is always right and just and deserves to be followed because he will always hold all people to account. Paul tells them that you're supposed to be led towards repentance by God's kindness, uh, not be led to license. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And what he's saying is taking the easy route, justifying your, um, your lawlessness, your sinfulness under a banner of it's necessary or expedient or whatever it might be, isn't actually benefiting you. You're storing up for yourself only problems to come. Now, he's not saying, as we follow on to verse 6 and 7, when he says, God will render to each one according to his works, those who are good will receive good, and those who are bad will receive bad. He's not saying that we justify ourselves before God by doing good things. He's saying the good things that you do speak of the state of your heart, whether you've been led to repentance or not. And if you don't do good things, if you do lie, if you do cheat, if you do steal, if you judge and condemn other people for those things when you're doing them yourself, Paul is saying that there's something wrong with your heart. Jesus picks up on this in the Gospels, doesn't he, when he says that you can't have good fruit come from a bad tree, and a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. It just doesn't work like that. The state of the heart works itself out in your actions, your speech, and your thoughts. And Paul is saying the same thing, but by a different uh, method here. And he says to the church that if your hard and impenitent heart defines who you are, rather than a heart that is softened by the grace of God and is truly living and beating for him, then you're actually just storing up judgment on the day to come because you are not one of God's you're a sinner. And God will judge and condemn sin regardless of where he finds it, even if he finds it in someone who claims to follow in his way to be part of his church. People who give much to the church in money and in effort and in time, it doesn't matter if the heart isn't right. And Jesus again says this in Matthew's gospel, doesn't he? In Matthew 7, many people will come to me on that day, on the day of God's judgment, which is what Paul's talking about here, the day of wrath, and will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many great things in your name? And Jesus will say, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They are unjust. They claim to do great things, but they themselves are not just and they do not follow a just God. And so God's wrath will be poured out upon them, Paul says, because God cannot abide sin. He hates sin, as we thought last week, and will pour out his just punishment on it. And that's something that we both love and hate at the same time, isn't it? We love it, the idea that a Hitler or a Stalin or a Pol Pot will receive true justice in all of its fury and wrath for what they've done. But if God is going to judge and condemn sin when he finds it in one, he must do so in all if he is a just judge. And that means from the greatest sinner to the least, 
all will be judged. And so will we if we are not casting ourselves upon God's mercy and repenting of our sin and seeking to follow in His way, because sin that marks our lives is just as grievous as the sin who marks the lives of the most atrocious tyrant or dictator. God must deal with sin where He finds it because He hates it, and He is perfectly just. The blessing for this in us is knowing that if we have repented of our sins, if we have turned from it and seek to follow in His way, if we have soft, yielding hearts to God, then we know when He says that we stand free of our sin, that He's not lying. We truly are free of our sin, and we can live in the joy of knowing that freedom, even when we struggle and we fail and we slip back into ways that are, um, that are sinful, that it doesn't define us. It doesn't hold us captive. We will not be judged for it finally on that last day. It means we are secure in God's hands. It means we need never fear, because God, the just, has pronounced me just. And for all that I will struggle, he would not have done so if there was a hint of sin in me. There will not be one sin left in your life if you cast yourself upon Christ that will go unpaid for, unatoned for. And so we have no cause for fear. Paul says that Jesus, that God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Those who seek after God, those who seek the just, the upright, the righteous life, regardless of how hard it is, this is what well-doing, seeking after glory and honor and immortality means. Life that is truly defined by a love, a passion for God and all his ways, however hard they may be. We trust that he's leading us the right way. And so, God will give us His leadership for all eternity and all that goes with it. Glory and honor and immortality and peace, he says in verse 10. But for those who are self-seeking, self-seeking is a confusing word here. It can mean contentious. Those who are opposed to the truth is really what Paul is saying here, and, and do not obey the truth. But obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That is, there will be judgment and condemnation because they simply will not have God's truth. They will not follow Him. They will not go His way for all that He is just and perfect and righteous. They simply won't have it for all sorts of reasons. They don't trust Him. They don't think He's going to lead them the right way. And so Paul says they will get what comes from that lack of desire to follow in his way. That is wrath, the fury of God against all sin. There will be tribulation and distress, he goes on to say, for all of those who does evil, regardless of who you are or where you come from. Paul says that we are to follow God by recognizing that he is a just God. We are to recognize if we follow a just God that we ourselves are called to be just and upright people. And we find that the only way for us to be a just and upright people in verses 9 through to 11 is for us to totally rely on a just Savior. You see, this is the big challenge of this passage 
Paul wants his readers to understand that none of them are free from sin by their own merit. None of them have the right to judge anyone else because you are a sinner just like the rest of the pagan Gentile world that I mentioned in chapter 1. You're just as bad as they are. You can't judge them. You're one of them. And as such, you are going to receive all of these awful things that Paul mentions in the passage, the wrath and the fury of God. Because we do evil. doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Greek. doesn't matter whether you're um, rich or poor, whether you're powerful or weak. It makes no difference. You will receive judgment for your sin because sin defines your life. So here's the problem that we have. How do we get the kind of life that Paul mentions here that receives great reward from God? How do we live the kind of life that isn't judgmental, that isn't sinful, that doesn't presume upon the riches and the goodness of God, but is in fact a life of repentance and faith, a just life that follows a just God? How can we have it? Well, the answer comes ultimately in casting ourselves upon the only person who has ever lived that perfect, just, upright life, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the one who, by patience and well-doing, has sought for glory and honor and immortality. He is the one who has received glory and honor and peace because he alone of all the human race has desired good and has pursued it completely without fault. And so, if we are to be just followers of a perfect, just God, we must cast ourselves upon Christ, ask for His forgiveness. This is what the repentance is, Paul mentions in verse 4, and follow in His way. Because when we do that, when we repent of our sin, when we put it away from us, what God does is He takes our sin places it on Christ, and Christ dies to take God's fury and wrath for that sin. The punishment is spent on Jesus. And Christ's perfect, righteous life that he lived without fault, seeking after God, his glory, his honor, and his peace, God takes and gives to us. A transaction takes place, and we receive our place in God's kingdom as one of these just followers of his. And again, it doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter, Paul says, if you're a Jew or a Greek. It doesn't make any difference if you're a pagan or if you're someone who's always known about the justice and the mercy of God and what God desires of you and so on, for God shows no partiality. What Paul is saying is that we must be the sort of person who pursues God's way, God's just way. And the only one who does is Christ. And so we must cast ourselves upon him. And as Paul is going to go on and say throughout Romans and throughout many of his other letters, we must be found in Christ, concealed within him, as it were. We take on Christ's identity by identifying with his death for our sin and by realizing that he then identifies his perfect life with us so we can receive these blessings. And this changes us. This transforms our life. We receive our reward, not just on the day of judgment when God has all of mankind before him and and gives to those who have been just and righteous a good reward and those who haven't uh, the, the, the bad reward. 
We receive the blessings of this here and now. We receive glory and honor and peace right now. Jesus equips us to follow in the life that He has given us by dying our death on the cross and giving us His perfect life. And so we are made able to walk in a just and right manner, an upright manner, before our just God. And so we complete the circle. Paul says that we ought to follow this God because He is perfect. He will never lead us in the wrong way for all we can't understand that and think He might do. We always seek to follow in His way because the followers of a just God must, by definition, be a just people. We don't really want Him if we're not going to follow in His way. But in order to become that people, we must cast ourselves upon a perfectly just Savior who can give us entry into that family to follow that great and glorious and wonderful leader. Having a perfectly just God is a truly marvelous thing. It is a challenging and a difficult thing. It will lead us to make difficult decisions. To, to go sometimes a very hard way in this world where there is so much injustice and we must stand against it because we are a just people. And yet, this is the people we are if we say we know and love the Lord God of Scripture. This presents us with a couple of challenges. It means that we have to live in His way. And that's going to mean standing up for what God says in His Word, even when uh, our whole society presses against us and says that is not acceptable in this present day and age. Even in Paul's day, he met ferocious opposition for standing for the standards of God because they were Paul's standards because of Christ and the impact he made on Paul's life. And we are called to do the same thing today. It will mean having sometimes difficult conversations with people. It will mean people looking at us and thinking that we are outmoded, old-fashioned Luddites, fools for believing these ridiculous ancient things that have no place in a modern and a fit society. It will mean standing up for those who have no voice, for the poor and for the broken and for the downtrodden, for the uh, most afflicted of our society. And it will mean, quite often, supporting one another and standing up for other Christians who face ferocious persecution around the world and pushing hard for justice to be done for them, even when it's an inconvenience, even when we will never know these men and women in this life because they live half a world away. But we do so because we are a just people, saved by a just Savior, to follow a just God wherever He calls us to go. This is the Christian life, Paul says. It sounds harsh, and yet it is the greatest blessing, the greatest joy that we can ever have. If we want to go any other way, we are without excuse. Let us not presume on the riches and the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of our God, but use His loving kindness to lead us to repentance and follow in His way wherever it leads. Amen. Let's pray together. Loving God, we give you thanks. We thank you for all that you have done for us. 
Lord, we thank you that our sins have been laid upon Christ and paid for, and we can have great confidence that they have been fully paid for, that we are free from slavery to sin because you're a just God and will have no part with sin. And if you draw us into your family, Lord, we know that we are truly saved. But Lord God, help us not to be judgmental of others, not to set ourselves up as better than others because we are better than no one. We are just as much a a lost, sinful group of people before we knew Christ than anyone in this world. And so, Lord God, help us not to be judgmental, but to be loving and kind and patient just as you are. Lord, lead us in the way that we should go and enable us to follow for all that it will be hard, it will be difficult. But Lord, help us to know and to trust you that you will never lead us in the wrong way. Lord God, help us to be known as a just and upright people who will always stand for what is right and good. And Lord God, we pray that you would have us rely upon our just and perfect Savior, Jesus, that we would trust in him, and Father, that we would serve him as part of this family as we seek to share the good news of the gospel with others, that others would know the justice, the true justice of God, and flee from the wrath to come and cling to the reward that comes from knowing Christ. Lord God, we ask all this in our Savior's perfect name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our band are going to lead us now in our closing time of sung worship. Let's sing together.